Welcome to the latest episode of MAPS Journey, the podcast that explores the experiences and challenges of individuals who experience minor attraction. In this episode, Elliot is joined by Crystal, a researcher who has dedicated her work to understanding the lived experiences of non-offending minor attracted people. Together, they discuss the importance of creating a safe and non-judgmental space for people who deal with minor attraction but choose not to offend. They explore the challenges that these individuals face, the reasons why they choose not to offend, and the stigma and fear that they often confront. Through their conversation, they shed light on the importance of better education for mental health professionals who work with this population. Join us as we explore this complex, and often a stigmatized topic, and learn about the experiences of non-offending minor attracted people. This episode will challenge listeners to consider the impact of stigma and judgment on this population and to recognize the importance of creating a supportive and inclusive society where everyone can feel safe seeking help when they need it. Hey, Crystal, how are you doing? Good. Good. Thanks for uh, coming on. I think this will be an interesting conversation. Yeah, I'm happy to be here today with you. So you and I met in person last year and enjoyed hanging out with you. So when I found out you wrote this dissertation, I thought it would be a cool idea to have you on and talk about it. So if you want to give a little bit of background about yourself and maybe why you decided to do this, uh, we'll start from there. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to. So I know as you, I know you, but um, I've been working in the area of uh, sexual attraction to adolescents and children in in my master's and um, PhD in Canada. So I'm over in British Columbia, Canada, and I go to the University of British Columbia. So I started by working with um, sexual offending behaviors in my master's. uh, But as I was going through that process and putting together categories essentially is what I was doing in my master's was trying to understand the different categories that exist in offending behaviors. I ended up uh, discovering a piece of literature by Michael Cito on whether pedophilia is a sexual orientation. So that paper was definitely not something I had ever come across before and it approached pedophilia from a much different perspective than I'd seen and looked at it as a developmental trajectory, essentially, of uh, sexual interest, similar to what happens with gender orientation, um, but instead towards age orientation. So taking that idea that Michael Cito had, I really wanted to explore why some people may never engage in offending behaviors, regardless of who they're attracted to. So Despite what mom, some people might think, there are a sizable portion of individuals that are sexually attracted to children that never go on to um, engage in any maladaptive sexual behaviors against children. And unfortunately, that tends to be the first thing people think of. And that even me, before I was engaged in this sort of research, probably would have been my first thought as well. When people hear the word pedophilia, they tend to think child sexual abuse. And those two things are not the same. One is a behavior and one is an attraction. So my research has been really trying to push the conceptualization forward that this is a sexual orientation or a facet of sexual orientation. And in understanding it as an orientation, also understand that some people will not necessarily act on it. And some people may, 
But I think as you can imagine, if somebody's coming into therapy and I'm training to be a clinical psychologist, if someone comes to me and tells me that they have sexual attraction to children and I'm approaching it from the perspective that um, this is, say, a deviant interest or something that they can change about themselves, I'm really going to be targeting it from something like conversion therapy, which, as we've recently said in Canada, is not something that should be um, legally done. And we need to also be applying that understanding to this because from what I'm seeing and from what CETO has conceptualized and my dissertation data, for a portion or a large portion of individuals that are sexually attracted to children, um, it is a, an orientation for them and it's something that tends to arise early on and develop during puberty very much like um, gender orientation does and then goes on to be an important part of their life moving on. So understanding how to reach self-acceptance in the sense of knowing who you are and what you what you are attracted to and what's okay to do and what is not and being comfortable in that can only do um, beneficial things for someone and that obviously wouldn't be the approach you take from conversion therapy so changing the orientation perspective is critical essentially to any sort of assessment and treatment as well if we're going to help individuals with well-being which obviously should be a concern for all people yeah definitely i mean I obviously, being a minor attracted person, I know that it is an orientation that's unchangeable. If I could change it, believe me, I would. I mean, mm-hmm. I and 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 that's you know that's the critical thing I always come to when I have this conversation. Is a when I ask people, the majority are saying they would change it if they could. Because b, who the heck would decide that? Yeah. Right. Like, look at the way it is treated in society and the way that individuals such as yourself have to go through life. Who the hell would choose that? Yeah. And plus, if you choose to be non-offending like I do, you can never fully be satisfied. I mean, it's just you can't have a a normal partner like most people people want and set out to have and it's just sometimes when I go through like difficult times and dealing with it my biggest thing is what is the point of this attraction existing there it serves no purpose at all in human existence and and it just to me like even if there was some alternate universe where there was no damage to children which we all know is not a possibility that you still if you had a relationship with the child, eventually that child will be out of your age of attraction and the relationship would end and it would be harmful to both people right. in emotional state. So and how why confusing, would you... how confusing yeah. to deal with that, let alone as an adolescent, right? Like that, yeah. that's, that's such a piece that comes out of it. And two pieces I want to talk about from the data is the first is that most individuals such as yourself are experiencing this during childhood or during adolescence. They are experiencing this early on at the same time that other individuals are experiencing their gender orientation come out as well. So are there a portion of individuals that experience it post-adolescence or it starts then? Absolutely, but it is a small portion and there are reasons that might be, but for the majority of individuals, it's happening when it's happening everywhere else for everybody else as well. This isn't a different occurrence that's happening. And that's where CETO's research comes in of individuals are experiencing this in puberty. It's stable over time. You're not magically waking up in 10 years and this isn't your interest anymore. And it's not simply sexual attraction. Individuals are not 
out there simply looking at children and sexualizing them and that's the extent of what's going on for them that's that's just simply silly right like that's like saying I'm only sexually attracted to my husband and there's no other elements to it right like attraction is not simply sexual and that I think is what helps distinguish the idea of um, sexual attraction to children and adolescents as an orientation versus like paraphilias is there's an aspect of romantic attraction and emotional attraction. And that's where I see for the people I've talked to and what you're describing, that second piece I wanted to jump to was the grief that comes with it. It's not that you are just attracted to children in a world that actively hates you for that. It's also that you will never have the fulfilling relationship that you dream about and want and fantasize about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, whether that's logistically able or whether that's physically able or any of the characteristics, it's not, it's just not possible in the world that we're at. And you know that, you accept that, you're moving forward with that. But that's heavy. That's grief. That's that's your entire life that you will not achieve a fundamental thing that many of us look for. And especially for exclusives, I'm yes. you know, kind of lucky that I'm non-exclusive, but even so, I... I say my percentage-wise breakdown is more 80-20. So um, even though I can find adult females attractive and I've had two age-appropriate relationships with females, I that is not my primary attraction. And so there's a lot of issues that come with that even when you're in a, a age-appropriate relationship with someone. And for to not be able to talk about it either mm-hmm. with that partner is so difficult because a lot of times I have a friend that is, at least with him, he can talk to his wife about it, but he constantly deals with self-doubt in the relationship, whether or not he could fulfill her needs and everything like that. And it's just, it's like we've already said, why would you choose this existence? (laughs) So, Well, and you make such an an important point that which is why understanding this as a sexual orientation is key, is that even that issue of, say, exclusivity, right? Like, we've talked about orientation with respect to, like, the Kinsey scale, where we have gender orientation, like you're bisexual to heterosexual or homosexual, and you can have these in-betweens. Well, that's what we're, that's what I'm, anyway, starting to look at with minor attraction in terms of, you know, there are individuals that are exclusively attracted to minors, no attraction to adults, and that's not a non-sizable portion, like, that's a pretty sizable chunk, and then we probably have two-thirds that have some attraction to adults to maybe equal attraction. The majority of individuals don't have primary attraction to adults. If they're attracted to minors, that's their primary attraction typically. But that also impacts outcomes, as you can imagine, and as you're talking about. So individuals that are non-exclusive have more ability to have an adult-oriented relationship. And actually, we just submitted a paper, and it's it's archived on Psych Archive, about romantic and sexual relationships among minor attracted persons with adult partners and why they have these relationships and what they function as. And we can see that individuals that are more exclusive have a much more difficult time. They do have um, a harder time socializing and just getting the interpersonal interactions that they want to have. And it's more of a struggle long-term for them. I know being hanging out with a lot of my guy friends Mm -hmm. when they start doing typical guy 
related behavior. This was right. especially normal in the our early 20s. I, they obviously would like to go to strip clubs and different things like that. And they could just never fully understand why I was uncomfortable in those situations. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of them maybe thought I was gay or, you know, what. And because how my minor attraction works where I'm primarily attracted to boys, but I'm my um, age appropriate attraction Mm -hmm. is still females. I've been actually tempted to tell my friends that I'm bisexual. And because I think majority of them would be accepting of that. And so I, you know, there's, and that's the thing. It's the biggest thing is this, that uncomfortable Mm. trying to communicate with people without, outing yourself because you don't know who's going to accept it and who won't and you don't want to lose friendships and so it's just I I had a therapist who said to me your attraction is only a part of you you get to decide how much so I know my minor attraction is not all that makes me but it is a big part just like anyone's sexual attraction right right and as much as we can say that that it's not all you are like we also wouldn't say to a non-minor attracted person, like, forget about your sexuality, right? It's yeah. it's an important part of our being. And ignoring that or putting that into denial, like, we, of the literature we do have, of the offending literature, we know that ignoring things and denying things is not the way to go. Mm-hmm. You know, that causes more harm than it does good. But... I mean, I wanted to step back to your your comment about disclosure and concern about disclosure because, you know, I want to point out that even when people do disclose, it's not necessarily the the thing that they hope for. They they may have support from people in the sense that they don't lose that friendship or they don't lose their family. But the thing I've seen a lot of still, um, even after disclosing, is that it's still not a conversation that can be had between them openly so even if you've disclosed to say your parents that you're attracted to minors and they've accepted that and they still love you and and they tell you that you can't talk to them about it they won't sit down and have a conversation with you about what you are attracted to you or or how it's it is in your daily life or things you're struggling with or so as much as disclosure helps it only helps so far when you can't actually use it as a method of support yeah like I, I, I lucked out on that front, but it did take almost 12 years for my mom to get to the point of being comfortable talking about it. I mean, uh, other people, I am sure other uh, people who listen to my podcast know the episode I did where I just have a normal conversation with my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, but oh, it took her a long time to get there. Like you said, I, she loved me. She accepted me, but she wouldn't talk about it or she was always concerned that if I was around a child, like what, what my thoughts were, or if I would happen to glance at a child, she would like try to distract me or different things like that. She would constantly, it was almost like she was subtly using conversion therapy with me. Yeah. And it becomes risk preventative, right? So then you're this, you see this person seeing you as a risk and that's, horrifying because that's already what I've talked to so many participants about of you know when you're discovering these interests obviously we are poor at sexual education as it is let alone talking about minor attraction but for individuals discovering this you know 
they it was like a two-phase process they would have early on maybe early childhood or early adolescence where they're discovering that they are attracted to younger people but there's no labels on it yet like it's that discovery we all have but then that second phase comes in where they start attaching the word pedophile or they start understanding the stigma and the what that word means and then comes all of the internalized stigma after that unfortunately and that's where if you have someone that you've told but they're not actually accepting that keeps that internalized stigma going on yeah like my my brother was the one who got me to finally come out but he's also the one that has decided not to have anything to do with me anymore either. And it, it was a occasional, it was actually a, a progression that happened over the years. Like at first he was the same as my mom. He loved me, he cared, still cared about me. He just didn't really want to talk about it. I mean, to the point that he invited me to his wedding and mm. I was his best man as, you know, per usual. And there were obviously kids there and he, he didn't view me as a threat or whatever but then like within recent years and I, I still really don't know what changed because he won't talk to me about it mm-hmm. he just has cut me out of his life and he won't even like want to discuss it at all and it's frustrating because not only does it put a strain on our relationship but it puts a strain on my mom and yep. it also leads to questions from friends and family like why is my brother not a part of our life anymore and you know so well and as soon as you've disclosed that you have even more worry right because then it's whether someone else is going to disclose on you as well and as we know you know that is not dealt with well right now we that's why we're having this conversation is is there still concerns about therapists reporting on minor attracted people simply for being minor attracted not because of their risk being to anyone and we have the the literature there of most people that are attracted to children aren't attracted to their own children yet we still keep saying these conversations of you know minor attracted people maybe they shouldn't be parents or maybe they should be around children well why we don't have anything to indicate that operates any differently in them You know, so that and that's one of the things we're looking at is how people think um, that's another paper. Oh, God, I got too many that we're working on. Of, <laughs> of, And that was one of the questions actually that came out of Before You Act. And one of the questions that you guys wanted to see was, or you folks, sorry, uh, wanted to see was, um, what about parenting? So we did a we did a study about how does this impact whether you want to be a parent, if you have been a parent, um, and we're just kind of putting those findings together now. But I mean, the literature that's out there by people like Michael Cedar, who's looked at incest offenders specifically is, it's not a large portion, right? Like we have a natural biological inclination to not be attracted to our own kin. And that's regardless of whether you're minor attracted or not. There's no reason to think that's different. Yep. I actually have a a friend, he's, you know, minor attracted and he's married and he has seven children mm-hmm. and some fall within his age of attraction and also um, his, his preferred, you know, orientation. And like he he talks to me all, all the time, like there's nothing there. there yeah. you know, of course not. <laughs> you know, he, he views them as he views his own body just there's not there's no attraction at all and so just because i'm attracted to adult 
males or females doesn't mean I'm attracted to my sister. Yeah. <laughs> like that, it doesn't operate magically different because of that. Um, but that's the thing is we have all of these things that we've ascribed to pedophilia or to sexual attraction to children that are not based in anything. But we, the, as you've seen, and as I've seen, people don't even want us to research it, to get those answers, right? To show them that maybe that's not the way it is. They don't even want to hear it. I think because they just think that we want it normalized, like their view viewpoint of what normal. does that even mean, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. what does normal mean? Because here we are and spent years on this. You have experts like Cito and Cantor telling you, like, this is biological. It's ingrained in people. Like, this is normal. This mm-hmm. is part of normal. This is part of the continuum. Um, but that's not the answer they want. Yeah. And like I, I always say, I've mentioned this numerous times before is I feel like every single person knows someone who is minor attracted in their life they're like my go-to line as well if you think that you do not know someone you are wrong and I guarantee you and even even if we just back up to again I know and maybe we'll talk about terminology and this can come up in that discussion but even if we separate out into like sexual attraction to children and adolescents first, like late adolescence and more of the hebophilic interests, like you see 20% of men acknowledging that. Yeah. I mean, look at what the top search is for. Um, Absolutely. Pet- Absolutely. Uh, in Canada, pet- in the United States, yeah. you know, like teenage porn, you know, um, underage, all those sorts of things. And we sexualize children constantly and adolescents, right? Like we, it is societal, yet we are shaming people who experience those attractions, mm-hmm. which yeah. makes no it's, sense. <laughs> yet, I actually, I, re, I was out shopping one day and I saw this um, teenage girl and the outfit she had on, I was like, and her dad was with her. I'm like thinking, if I was that girl's dad, there is no way I would let my daughter set foot outside of the house dressed like that and yet we're it just blows my mind that one that clothes like that exists for a girl her age and well that's where this argument comes in right and and i i can see both perspectives of of obviously you get the feminist argument here of people should be able to dress and do however they want and not be sexualized okay that's fine if you're not acting on it i actually don't care You can't shame people for having thoughts, right? Like, that's where we're at. That's what this discussion is, is you're mad at somebody looking at your teenage daughter and feeling sexual attraction. I'm sorry, but that sucks for you. That's life. Yep. Like, we are not the thought police. You cannot stop people from thinking that. If we did, we'd have a whole lot of problem with the porn that we can track that people look at. Like, give me a break. Yeah. But it's just just this one section because, and I think it's because we do see children as the most vulnerable, right? That they cannot stand up for themselves and that we've had all these issues with that, um, that people are so fearful mm-hmm. of making the wrong decision in that circumstance that they will always overstep in the other way, which is to me just as problematic. Yeah. I mean, yeah, people can be way overprotective of their kids in numerous ways and then they end up being you get a, a, a adult that is afraid to do anything because their parents were those helicopter parents that just would even allow them to cross the street by themselves so. yeah yeah but I, and it it's just 
we have very different sets of rules and like to apply them at different times. So I think that's the best yeah. way to describe it. Yeah, it's um, and just like kids don't like to see their parents as sexual beings. <laughs> same, yep. same goes the other way around, I'm sure, you know. It's just... Absolutely, absolutely. And that's part of it, too, is we see this. I mean, you can look at the United States as a great example, but Canada does it, too. We don't have as extensive sex education as we should. Um, we're really uncomfortable with the idea of adolescent sexuality. We really like to... Um, act as if we should stop that rather than it's a natural occurrence. And in my perspective, and as having taught sexuality and like, and studying these things, children are sexual and do sexual things. It's very different motivations, right? Very different motivations, very different experiences of it. That doesn't mean they don't act in sexual ways. Um, they're not doing it as an adult, obviously. And that's the thing. Most individuals that I've talked to specifically if we talk about non-offending minor attracted persons that is the viewpoint they have as well right mm -hmm. that regardless of what attractions they have they don't see children as capable of consenting they don't see them as having the same motivations so regardless of what those individuals want from that interaction they don't see it as possible regardless and respect that yeah because I mean the balance of power is the biggest issue, I feel like. Even if a child, quote-unquote, consents, or a teen, I would say, more so than a child, um, mm -hmm. consents to a, a relationship with an adult, they they don't have that mental capability of understanding what that fully means. And, you know, one side could be more hurt, hurt than the other if, like, it goes the wrong way. And, you know, there could be regret or you know mm -hmm. stuff like that so that's why I always choose to be non-offending because you never know the result like to me if a person abuses someone sexually abuses someone that is like mm -hmm. one of the most selfish acts that you can do upon another person because mm -hmm. you're totally having your sexual gratification take precedent over someone else's mental well-being and it, it's it's not worth that risk for me and that, though, is a factor of offending, not of minor attraction, right? And that's why I like to separate those things is like when we talk about it in the context of minor attraction, it makes it sound like it's specific to minor attraction, but it's not. Like these are characteristics that may be representative of offenses in general, not necessarily related to the minor attraction. Do you know what I mean? Like someone may have been predisposed to engage in criminal behavior, regardless of their minor attraction and they just happen to be minor attracted so trying to assign it necessarily to the minor attraction is a very difficult thing to do um but i think you bring up something i want to touch on which is important too that i do touch on in my dissertation is these conversations are also difficult as you know because they're the group the, the community of minor attracted people are varied right like the thoughts about these things are varied the thoughts about um consent and and age of and reforming those things and whether people can consent there are so many different viewpoints on it and not all of the viewpoints are well liked in terms of non-minor attracted people and that also makes it difficult to bring it to a broader audience definitely i mean and then also too it's just i know for a lot of people it just makes people extremely uncomfortable i mean mm, i'm yes i'm to the point where I am with my mom where I'm I'm comfortable if I see a, a, a kid I 
see on TV or something, I'm comfortable to the point of telling her that I find that kid attractive. Right. But years ago, I would like have just kept it to myself because I didn't know what her reaction would be by me seeing that, you know, and people just it's and that's, I think, why this is a whole other topic, why it's important to have a a community of people that understand you is you can address those things and talk about those things without feeling judged. Like anytime I'm around other minor attractive people, it's just almost Mm -hmm. a sense of relief that you could be yourself. And, Mm -hmm. and like, I know people think that if minor attractive people get together, they're plotting (laughs) evil, whatever, but it's mostly just to be around someone. We just hung out in the sauna and like talked, but it was pretty evil. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's true but, though, uh, and it, it it does it it makes it it makes it difficult. Um, and like people will always refer back to those cases, right? They'll they'll refer back to the certain groups that have that viewpoint, or maybe the certain groups who say they should be allowed to have sexual interactions. And that's what. But we can't judge all minor attracted persons based on that. Or maybe I should judge America based on Trump, like. Definitely. And with the attraction part with your mom, I think that's really interesting because that comes back to the thought policing, right? Like in for most in most secure relationships anyway, if you said like, oh, that celebrity is attractive, that wouldn't that's not a big deal, right? Like you're just saying something that is an aesthetic that you're not never going to act on. You're probably never even going to meet that person. Um, But there's something inherently about it being a child that makes people uncomfortable. Yeah, children can't be attractive. And I mean, there's actually some times, too, where my mom can actually point out to me a kid that she's like, I bet you probably find that boy attractive because she, Mm -hmm. you know, she can understand that children can have an attractive nature upon them. That Again, like you said, it doesn't mean we're going to act on it or that, you know, that kid's now at risk because I find them attractive. Absolutely. And I mean, I can tell you all sorts of people that are likely aesthetically pleasing or attractive to other people, but that doesn't mean I'm experiencing specific individual attraction to them in that moment, right? And that separation of of thinking of minor attraction people as these like over hypersexual, like can't control themselves, always around children, like that's erroneous and just false, right? Like it's not, it does not represent what minor attractive people are like. They are everyday people like everybody else (laughs) living their lives, um, experiencing this attraction. This is not this like random extreme group of people that suddenly experience life differently than the other 7 billion people in the world who they probably make a, you know, large chunk of. It's, we have just this weird capacity to apply different rules to pedophilia and to minor attracted people than we do to everything else in, in the world, really, unfortunately. I mean, I think Todd said it in one podcast that I did with him where he said that um, pedophilia, um, people who are pedophiles or hepophiles or whatever, they're, they're basically the modern day leper. Like everyone mm. can universally hate, Absolutely. hate that them like no matter what your standing is republican democrat right wing left wing religious or not you know everyone can come to that consensus and would you have to ask yourself like the the 
and like to people that listen to this and like aren't sure of what they think of it regardless of what you think of it the fact that I as a, a, a researcher right like I finished my PhD now I'm about to go into internship I've spent a decade of my life studying this like I have a lot of data and the response to me is people email me and tell me my four-year-old son should die jeez tell me just, how that's solving be- this problem wow just because you are because I'm studying <laughs> studying sexual attraction to children in an attempt to understand resiliency specifically for my dissertation, but that I'm not framing it as they should die, essentially, is what I am being chastised for. And it's not the first time, you know, like I know, you know, Twitter, there are all sorts of crap on there. But like this was through my practice email, like found my website, went through my practice email, looked up, you know, all my social media so they could find something and then sent me that email. Wow. That is crazy. And in what, in what world is that helping children? (laughs) You know, I'm going to save the children. Go kill yours. Like (laughs) what? Yeah. That's why I gave my therapist complete credit all in the world that he put on his website, a whole page about how he views minor attraction. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, like every day, if people discover his, um, his website that he probably gets hate mail sent to him. But well, and we've talked about that at before you act right that a lot of therapists and clinicians sometimes don't put it on because we do get we get that sort of uh, feedback, if I can call it that. Um, And I like I choose to put it on mine. I what I've chosen to put, I don't explicitly put anything, but the people who are involved in that will know. But it says ideal in all sexual orientations, including maps, so that if someone's aware of that, they'll know that I'm open to it. Um, but it's also gotten a lot worse, obviously, with what's been going on in the states and the political situation and QAnon, right? Like it's for me, I remember <laughs> I was like, this is coming at the worst possible time as I get ready to release my dissertation. Um, because I knew how that was going to be framed, right? Is we're in the middle of QAnon saying how pedophiles are eating children. And then I drop my dissertation, which is like, let's shift the focus and help these individuals with their well-being. (laughs) So, um, but it's needed, right? Speaking of like, you know, that's what we started out this conversation being about your dissertation. Mm -hmm. Like, so, so how did you go about getting percent? participants and stuff like that like what was your process so I was hoping originally to kind of get um, minor attracted people from various communities and by communities in terms of like before you act and virtuous pedophiles but also um, some of the more maybe uh, pro consent reform laws Um, unfortunately they were not necessarily as receptive to my research which is fair because it was very much framed in a risk preventative standpoint because that's kind of what I had to do to get it through ethics mm-hmm. um, so primarily my participants were from before you act in virtuous pedophiles and then also some people that I kind of snowballed off Twitter um, but the majority of my sample actually ended up being non-offending individuals so um, I think 97% had never engaged in any sort of contact um, the majority had used like sexually explicit material, but not had never engaged in any sort of contact um, with a child. So it was really nice for me, actually, because I ended up being able to take the data I have. And because I hadn't had the offending data that we thought that we might have, 
I was able to refocus my entire dissertation on resiliency because I was kind of like, oh, hey, I don't even have that data, so let's just do this, and ended up um, reframing the entire dissertation to instead focus on what can we learn from these individuals and what they're finding successful and what they're finding isn't working so that we can move forward in this field to help because, you know, I'm a therapist at heart. I'm not an academic, although I love research and I feel like I'm good at it. I don't enjoy the process because of the politics that are involved in the process. Um, so by the end of it, my real goal was what can I use from this to help people moving forward? And so I took the data from Before You Act in Virtuous Pedophiles and ended up running through um what is the data there that supports uh, sexual attraction to children as a sexual orientation? What's related to their resiliency? Um, I did what's called a latent or latent profile analysis. So that pretty much it's a fancy way to say that it takes all of the data I have, and instead of me assuming that there's any sort of relationship, it kind of just lets the data talk to me. So it says. You have all these minor attracted people. Um, there might be some groups in here, there might not. And that's what it tells me. It tells me whether they kind of all just fit into one big bowl or whether there's sub pockets. Um, and my data seem to show that there are some subtypes of minor attracted people. And this is relevant for therapy. And the way that I framed it in my dissertation was about therapy. So for some individuals, it seems like their minor attraction is kind of what they are struggling with. That is, yeah, I think that was maybe a quarter of my participants of, it, they were struggling with self-acceptance, well-being, all those sorts of things. Um, and then there was about half of my participants that were not stressed about their minor attraction. You know, they had accepted it on some level, they were dealing more with psychological distress, you know, or social isolation or things that we were, would typically be dealing with in therapy. So when they're coming in for therapy, that's what we should be dealing with. Um, and that's typically not what's happening. A lot of people or therapists are drawing them back into talking about their minor attraction as if it's an issue, even when it's not. And then we have two other groups, which were very, which were smaller. Um, one group was, uh, they just, didn't seem to have any issues. So they were just kind of going along. They had uh, a good kind of group of support. They were feeling pretty good mental health wise. So there just was not a lot of distress there. They were doing well um, and they had good social support. There was a last group, which is the one that of course people tend to pick out and want to talk about, even though it was the smallest, which was the one that seemed to have some more problematic, um, you know, characteristics that might indicate more propensity towards maladaptive behaviors. But that again, does not mean that it will happen because as we've seen, those people hadn't engaged in any sort of offenses. So just because we might see some characteristics that indicate that's more likely doesn't mean it's going to happen. And I think that just shows this. Um, so we can see that even though there's all these groups of individuals, they're there for different reasons and they have different personalities. They have um, different attractions and it's just not this um, single bowl of Skittles that you get. And we can talk about as if all minor attracted people are the same. They're not. Right. Just again, this was my the point of my dissertation was minor attracted people are like everybody else. <laughs> like there's variation. Right. Like it's like everything else. So when somebody is coming into therapy and I think this is the point of my dissertation, when someone comes into therapy, ask them what they're there for. Yeah, don't definitely. don't don't tell them what they're there for. And that is the problem that's going on right now with therapy for minor attraction. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Like when. So, you know, I, I've gone through 
um, the first two groups um, numerously, uh, numerous times during my life where there are times when I'm really struggling with my interaction. Not that mm-hmm. by struggling, I don't mean that I'm feeling I'm a risk of offending. No, and, more- and I don't mean that either. And I should clarify that it was more of the distress they're feeling is in relation to the struggles they're having with being unable to fulfill minor attraction and feeling fulfilled in life for having that grief or all the emotions that come with it. Yeah. And like there was, you know, we touched briefly about how for minor attraction, it works like any other attraction and orientation mm-hmm. where there's emotional and romantic aspects. So mm-hmm. um, when I started with my current therapist, I was in a, a moment of crisis where I kind of like almost fell in love with this complete stranger. And, and I knew that obviously I would probably never even talk to this person. Um, But when that um, person was it on the bus for two days in a row, I thought that that person was going to be out of my life forever. So I got suicidal. And um, so I realized those thoughts were, not great (laughs) and Mm -hmm. so I saw it help so when I first started talking to my therapist it was working through those issues and figuring out ways where I can grieve that process of that person not being in my life anymore and but then eventually like currently we're working right now on how I can stay motivated to better my life and move out of you know my mom's house and you know get it a good paying job and stuff like that so like i know when people yell at you on twitter and stuff getting help they they just assume it's conversion therapy you know well and that's what they mean by help right what they when they're saying and yelling at you to get help on twitter they're saying get rid of this attraction and i'm sorry to the folks listening but that's not possible for the majority of minor attracted people so you know there are some individuals that maybe became interested in it later on in life for different reasons that kind of make up a different group. But for those that are developing it, you know, in childhood and in puberty, when we see gender orientation also developing, very unlikely this is ever going to change. Mm -hmm. So if we are going to improve well-being, we have to approach it from that way. And that is crucial. And unfortunately, there are still a significant amount of clinicians that do not follow that train of thought. And that's why getting this research base, getting the empirical evidence that supports these conceptualizations and these theories and not just talking about it anymore and talking about the stigma, but actually dealing with the theory and the conceptualization and the diagnostics, like we have to change how it's working on the ground or this will never change. You know, if, if researchers and clinicians don't start to reframe it as a sexual orientation, we will never treat it differently. You're always going to have clinicians approach it from that because in reality, we get very minimal training of sexuality in itself in clinical training. You know, I am a clinical psychology student. I'm heading into internship. I've not done a lot with sexuality in terms of clinical work. It is not something we get a lot of training in, let alone something this specific. Uh, you, You saying that reminded me. So the current job I have, I work in this warehouse and I deal a lot with like old textbooks and getting rid of them and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So anytime I discover a psychology textbook, uh, you know, I automatically flip, <laughs> yep. flip back to the index to see if there's anything about pedophilia or even paraphilia. 
And I say 95% of the times it's not even mentioned at all. And so it's just like, how are people going to understand this and help people who need the help? That's uh, when people say get help, then like, how are you supposed to get help if there's no one who can actually help that person? So, well, and I think too, that we have a, almost this, we still have this crisis of unwillingness to accept sexuality as crucial to our humanity, um, especially because we still kind of have this religious underpinnings of everything and that that sexuality somehow has this wrongness. And more broadly, I'm a sexuality prof. You know, I teach on sexuality. I, I do teach on, you know, uh, child attraction as well, but it, there it's kind of a piece of everything that I do. And And so many people never talk about sexuality, never talk about sex, never have conversations about relationships let alone at the level that we're talking about. So, I mean, until we can even get clinicians comfortable with talking about sex, we have so much work to do. So it's it's like this constant trying to progress the field forward. But, like, until we even get them talking about sex, it's hard to get them talking about minor attraction. Yeah. I mean, most people blush if they have to ask. <laughs> answer a kid's question about, you know, like, how does mommy get pregnant or something like that you know it's just and uh, you know so yeah it's just like going from not even being able to talk about normal human nature to Mm -hmm. something that's not I I don't want to say abnormal but you know just like this not talked about and not addressed like I I could imagine if I grew up in a pretty conservative home and Mm -hmm. so I did even think I could come out as homosexual to my parents, let alone that I had an attraction to children. And so for all my teen years into my early 20s, I struggled with it, you know, and I went down some dark paths. And um, it, it just, if I could have addressed it early and, you know, got a full understanding and knowing that I was still loved, I think completely different I would have had good self-esteem I would have had like less stigma um, feelings and stuff like that but it's just not addressed and so all these kids struggle with it and I'm just glad that what is out there is out there now like I could imagine if I had a verped back when I was an early teen like (laughs) yeah or like I know um the Moore Center has set up a, yeah. a thing called Help Wanted or something like that. And like to discover that and be able to know that people care about you and know that you're not going to offend. And, you know, it's just because as with most people, even though I had that attraction, I assumed pedophilia was child sexual abuse. And so I knew I didn't want to offend. So it was such an abnormal thing for me to have this attraction. So it just made no sense. That's what, and and that's so crucial because so many individuals that I've talked to identify, you know, that that start of recognizing the attraction in their adolescence and, and that notion of when they start to think of it as um, that inevitability of offending, right? That people start to have that thought that there's this inevitability of offending. Imagine if we could teach all of the individuals that it's not that. 
that this does not mean that you will go on and offend. This just means there's something different about you. That doesn't mean that you have to go on to that. You know, how different would that have made your life? How different would that make all of these individuals' lives? We know that suicidal ideation and suicidal attempts are high in this population. You know, Verped does its own its own kind of surveys and obviously individuals that are trying to not offend might be more sensitive to certain things and and that you know we've talked I've talked about that actually in in context of terminology and maybe that's where we should talk about that here of you know when I released my dissertation the decision was made to um change the term where I'd use minor attraction throughout it to child attracted persons um at the kind of um request slash discussion that I had with Dr. Michael Cito, who's kind of the expert in this area, who is sitting on my committee. Um, as I go forward in publishing, I'm not using child attracted persons. Uh, the All the publications I've written up don't use that terminology, but for the purposes of my dissertation, it did. Um, and that, that comes in here too, because I can't find a good way to communicate it between both populations, between both minor attracted people and the research community. And I think that's one of the biggest struggles that this field is at right now is because it's hard to put it out in any way that it's formally accepted by all the groups that are involved. Yeah, if I that agree. makes like, sense. <laughs> well, because, you know, there are certain people like who don't even like the term map. They're just, I'm a pedophile. That's what I am. Or, you know, and. Absolutely. And even the, exactly, even within the groups, right? Like, Cito just has a new study where he came out and like, I know TNF was talking to, well, talking or arguing with <laughs> Cito about the terminology, maybe is a better word. Uh, and uh, Cito made the point, and I think it's a fair point. Like the majority of individuals identified themselves as pedophiles or attracted to children. Like, and we talked about how this might be a product of sensitivity among minor attracted persons, just depending on you know, what sort of group you're falling in at that time of those groups we talked about. Because if you are feeling, you know, very sensitive and very, you know, you're very much still in that thought of inevitability of offending and like you you just feel like everyone thinks you're going to offend and you don't have that self-acceptance yet, you are going to be more triggered by that sort of stuff. And I understand that. Um, it's also very, very difficult, though, to do the research and not use some sort of clinical terminology and have people understand and accept it. So... Yeah. And that was the hard part of the terminology because I did, I felt torn. I, th I think that's just the best way to use it because Cito's point that the research we have is pretty much reflective of pedophilic behaviors, not hebophilic. And if we talk about the ba background research I have, that's accurate. So I'm not drawing on the research that tends to address most attraction to adolescents, but it's not even that clear either because when I look at my data, all of the individuals that expressed attraction to prepubescent also expressed the same attraction to pubescent. So it's very hard to figure out what to call individuals or how to classify these things. And that's why sometimes minor attraction comes in handy to me, to be honest, because, you know, my individuals in my studies are expressing attraction across the spectrum. You know, they're expressing it to individuals that are prepubescent boys and maybe adolescent girls. Like there are these... Uh, different variations of it that don't necessarily fall under pedophilia or hebophilia. So 
I think we have a lot of work to do in terms of understanding how to use language. And I know I'm part of that discussion and, and not everybody's always happy with it, but I'm glad we're at least having the discussion about what's going on and how to label it instead of not having the discussion at all. Well, the reason I mostly use MAP or being an attractive person for myself, initially it was to get out of that stigma of Mm -hmm. having a pedophile associated with sexual abuse. Like, I knew I never wanted to offend. So I was like, here here I am. I I hate using the word pedophile because that's what it means to the majority of the world. But then eventually when I became more accepting of, Mm -hmm. yeah, I am a pedophile, like that accurately describes me because of my my orientation and my attraction but yeah. i'm also i'm also a hebophile because i am attracted to pubic pub, i can't ever say that word <laughs> um, but so to me it map covers the spectrum then for yes. me where, yeah. where it's like if i was just exclusively attracted to prepubescent then i could just call myself a pedophile but right And my question is, why are we expecting the answers to things we haven't even answered about non-minor attracted sexuality, right? Like, we have no answer to why some individuals are bisexual. Mm -hmm. So why do we expect that answer or clear terminology right now of what we're discovering in minor attraction, right? So it's, I think I I call for patience, (laughs) which is difficult and we're just such a new field, right? And we're still discovering these things. And I do find the relationship that you just mentioned that individuals that seem to be at like a later part of their discovery or like really kind of past the self-acceptance phase and are kind of into their life without um, having distress associated with this minor attraction anymore. Do I have seen them label themselves as pedophiles a lot mm-hmm. and and use that terminology a lot. And then I do find that the map comes up when we're talking about stigma a lot more and trying to remove the stigma out. But I think when we're switching terminology a lot, this is where people start to, and erroneously, not saying that it's accurate, people start to come in and say that we're like playing with the language or we're trying to, you know, hide what's going on or trying to normalize things by changing the language instead of just, you know, saying that, no, this is pedophilia and we just need to accept this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they think we're trying to sugarcoat it or like, yeah. you know, make it like more accepting and friendly and all that stuff. And it's not that at all. So yeah, but. and and from their perspective, right, it's softening the language, which it is, but we're softening it for first person reasons, not for mm-hmm. offending reasons, but that's the way that they're viewing it. So then you're constantly in this trap of everybody is misperceiving what you're trying to do at all times. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And like, you know, there's always that constant um, argument that people think that um, minor attractive people want to be added to the LGBT spectrum. And me, I don't know who's talking about that. Nobody I know is saying that. (laughs) Yeah. And the thing is, is like for me, they just don't want to get killed for existing. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't want I personally don't want to be added to it because to me it is to me that's more gender specific than um, but I know there's all those other aspects of LGBT that are added on normally because otherwise <laughs> would it be able to pronounce it but um, we're running out of space we're gonna have to break something out eventually <laughs> yeah. but like to me I I rather more just I could just see where 
map becomes a general term like just like just lgbt and more so just that's the way people can discuss it on a normal level you know and absolutely and i think that and what the argument i made when i was talking to cedo about some of it and this is why i ended up changing it because i thought his point was fair because my my dissertation is not about resilience or not about stigma it was very much about resilience and the literature i used was very much based on attraction to children um but Oh gosh, now I lost my frame of thought. <laughs> what was I talking about? Oh, the stigma that I find minor attraction that helpful term when we're talking about stigma because regardless of whether you specifically identify as a pedophile or a hebophile or attracted to Tanner stage two, the stigma you're dealing with is the same. Mm-hmm. You know, the reaction that you're dealing with, whether you are a, you know, uh, attracted to two-year-old girls or seven-year-old boys on Twitter, it doesn't matter. No. Not, right? Not... Like, the societal reaction to these subtypes is the same. So when I'm talking about minor attraction from stigma, I think it is the best term because the stigma that you're dealing with is the same regardless. When we're talking about the actual sexual attraction and sexual orientations, sure, I think we will need to specify because even if we look at attraction, sexual attraction to children versus sexual attraction to adolescents, I mean, there's a big difference between those. You have significantly more men at least openly acknowledging sexual attraction to later adolescents. So there's differences there that exist in the literature, and I can see the relevance of the terminology. Um, but I do think that minor attraction also has a role to play. Yeah, definitely. And like you're mentioning stigma about like a two two year old to a seven year old or whatever. I since I've joined the community, I've noticed that there is actually a lot of um, people who are in the community that are afraid to say that they are a nepiophile or attracted yeah. to even younger children, even amongst people that yeah. will, will accept them because they view themselves as abnormal within that community. Absolutely. So. And, and it's, and it's not, and the thing is, it's the same, right? If we think about orientation, there's nothing, characteristically different when we're talking about the science of it but the moral feeling of it right Mm -hmm. the feeling that people have about the thought of someone being attracted to a toddler is overwhelming for them but they can't separate it and that's even overwhelming I mean I can't imagine being the person who is experiencing that attraction thinking about other people thinking about me yeah I mean, like when yeah. people don't get to be themselves, it will never lead to anything good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like when we have to deny essential pieces of ourselves, it's never going to end well. And this is the conversation I have with people of, OK, let's just let's go from your assumption that all individuals have an inevitability of offending, which I disagree with. But for the sake of our thought experiment, sure. So what you're saying is we should not give them appropriate therapy if they need it. We should shame them, which we know statistically and research-wise will cause them to engage in more offending behaviors or recidivate. And we should not provide them anything that would actually allow them to reduce their chance of offending is currently what the plan is. Yeah. So even if your goal is to reduce offending against children, you are doing a piss poor job by ignoring this. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it blows my mind. It's like, and that kind of- And if, you're, if your goal is to help children, these are children. They were children. 
and they mm-hmm. experience this as children. Yeah. So trying to say like this is not part of it is insanity because every single person we're talking about was an adolescence that dealt with this and a huge majority of them dealt with mental health distress and suicidality. At least isn't that worth dealing with? Mm-hmm. I know it's just like people just like we were talking earlier how people don't want to view children uh, you know sexual beings or as uh, like you know the opposite way around children don't want to view their parents people don't want to view that uh, a a 13-year-old boy or a 13-year-old girl could have this attraction because they feel like well they're children themselves how can they be attracted to children like absolutely. that doesn't make sense absolutely so. i had a client in um i was working in youth forensics a couple years ago for some of my training and i had a client that came in who was watching um uh child sexual exploitation material and had defended against uh, a child um and i was doing therapy with them and obviously i'm me so i was approaching it slightly differently than they tended to approach it in forensics which they were actually really appreciative of which i am really happy about and they're They've asked me to come talk next month and give a talk to use forensics about this because of how I approached it with this child um, or teenager, I guess. But, you know, a lot of my therapy with him was trying to get him to understand that he did not have to hate himself. Mm-hmm. You know, like that he didn't have to hate himself if this was something he was attracted to. Like, we need to talk about that. And figure out what that looks like. And, you know, when we left therapy, I ended up just giving him, like, all the resources I have for virtuous pedophiles and all these things. And the approach could have been what they typically do, which was give them the sexual offending workbook and, like, tell them to do it. But what would that have done? Oh, like, when I, the first time I sought therapy, it was with my brother's therapist. And she had only had worked with offenders in the past. So that was her her training Mm -hmm. so she didn't know how to treat me as a non-offender like so at first probably the first few months of our our sessions together she was basically doing the offender (laughs) workbook with me and I'm like I know all this stuff I don't need this stuff I need to understand how to go about day-to-day life and like deal with the stigma and the shame that I feel of this like how do I process that like and it eventually we had to part ways well mostly on her end because of money Mm -hmm. but uh, on my end (laughs) I knew that she wasn't gonna be a help to me you know she she did help me in some ways of building my self-confidence up enough to move across the country but she didn't give me tools on how to deal with you know, the things I still needed uh, in, you know, day-to-day life with this attraction because she didn't have that training. And I don't know how many people actually do have that training. So, Well, and what even is the training, right? Like, that's the question we have now. And the question I'm trying to answer is what we have does not work, right? Like, we have the results that are coming out of Germany, out of Dunkelfeld with their projects. It helps for people who've offended. Doesn't help for those who haven't. Because it's still approaching it from a risk preventative standpoint, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're still going in. I remember when we were talking about this at Before You Act that, you know, one of their core modules for the program that they're doing at Dunkelfeld is like how to empathize with others. And it's like, in what world do we think that minor attracted people can't empathize with others? Yeah. Like, 
like that's... if we're talking about the non-offending group, why are you assuming that they can't af- empathize with others? Like this isn't an offender. Yeah. And that to me, I think is one of the primary things that keeps me from offending is my ability. I, I actually consider myself an empath. Like I feel other mm-hmm. people's, um, you know, emotions and so strong that I have to take some time by myself and recharge because yep. otherwise I go crazy. And, and I don't doubt that like em- empathy and like resilience play a role for some individuals that don't offend because some of us, and I, I include myself in this because I kind of, I would identify as an empath is that for the same reason, I don't understand why I can do this work and I just accept people as they are. You don't offend. There's just something good about you that will never let you do that. And why is that a weird thing when we don't assume that's weird about anybody else who doesn't offend? <laughs> like, you know, this always comes up in discussion. Like when you try to explain why pedophiles cannot offend is you every time you walk you down the street. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, well, <laughs> it's normal behavior, you know. Like, uh oh, I'm a bisexual adult woman. Be wary, world. Every adult better be afraid. Like, yeah. I'm not jumping every attractive person I see on the street. Like, this is where there's that separation of like, in what world do you think minor attracted people live in? I think we would have noticed if people were just dragging children off the street like this is it's insanity it's insanity and they take the smallest cases or the most isolated cases i know you know of like stranger danger and all these things that have nothing to do with it and just hyper inflate it it's fear-based it's very fear-based because we don't we don't want to feel like we're going to ever put a child at risk but again if we come back to the very basics of it these are children at risk, mm-hmm. right? Like Definitely. maps are the children at risk that we need to be helping from suicide, from depression, from anxiety, from lack of social support, from loneliness, from hopelessness, all of these things, because that is what impacts them the rest of their lives, not just that they're dealing with sexual attraction to children. Yeah. And so was that basically, was that the biggest thing that you came across about resiliency with, when talking to the people that you did in your dissertation was like you know what was their resiliency like what kept them from offending like what was the was there yeah so we had some really interesting results when i think about the groups um the one in particular i was really interested in and i would love to look more specifically at that group was the one that were kind of had no distress going on and i thought that was the most interesting one in terms of characteristics um we saw some And talking about empathy, which is relevant, um, there were very specific personality characteristics that seemed to be um, related to it and that came out in the profile. And these were things which I expected to see, although my supervisors argued with me about whether it would be relevant for minor attracted people, um, were positive personality characteristics like uh, openness to experience. And um, a really important one was honesty and humility. So... Uh, This is a a personality characteristic that kind of taps into empathy and being an empath. So the point of this personality characteristic is your willingness to kind of help the vulnerable or people that are, you know, in some sort of vulnerable position, which if you think about it, 
matches the idea of children. And we saw that this was heightened in that group that really weren't dealing with distress of any sort, that they had those sort of personality characteristics that may have just made them think about it differently or um, have that empathetic reaction differently than we see in some of the other groups. Um, And maybe it's just heightened so much in that group. Uh, But I'd be very interested in understanding how self-esteem plays into this, obviously, because if you think about this, this is no different, again, (laughs) than any other group where some individuals have this kind of empathy and some individuals don't. So my question is always, are we talking about individuals that are predisposed to offend against a child because they are sexually attracted to children? Or are we just talking about individuals who are predisposed to offend because of things that have happened in their life, which we know there's a bunch of risk factors like that. And that we don't have any answers about right now. And I think that's where we need to go if we want to understand it. Um, But again, I run into the problem of some minor attracted people don't like when I ask that question, right? They don't want me to ask what differentiates the people that offend and don't offend and that makes it difficult as well because I mean that's not a nice or great question to have the answers to give people but it's important we do answer it I I fully agree and I think that you know if us as a community as my fellow maps out there want to be understood by society I think we got to be open into addressing that in ourselves like I you know I constantly look at that on myself like why do I not consider myself a risk and why why someone else I talk to online I feel like maybe at a greater risk and you know one thing that I we recently talked about in the group I'm in it's like a it's a edu- psycho bio psychoeducational group but it's mm-hmm. normally ends up being group therapy more than anything but um <laughs> It's uh, through the prevention project, but we work through this uh, curriculum that um, they put together. And Mm -hmm. one of, we recently talked about static and um, I forget the other word, um, risk factors. And when it comes to like empathy, it seems that people who have more empathy have attachment injury somewhere in their life. And yes, yep. And I know with me, with my parents separating and the time frame when they separated, you know, was in my early adolescence and they kind of abandoned Mm -hmm. us. And, and so I, you know, I started actually working with my therapist on that. Like maybe that is part of the reason why I can know that I'm not at risk of offending because I can empathize with what that's like to harm a child. So, and I, I love that point and I want to follow up on it with, I like that story because where I can see other people that are not in the community that we're in could go with that is saying maybe because you've had trauma that you become attracted to minors. And I want to state there that that's such a different statement than what you're making of of struggles associated with kind of trauma or attachment that maybe caused mental health distress that's separate. So because your, your orientation won't be affected by that, but it's going to make it more difficult, right? And then and then your circumstances were more difficult, which made it easier to empathize, and then it changed how you interacted with your orientation, but not necessarily your orientation itself. Um, and that question comes up a lot of, because there is a higher rate 
of instance of abuse during childhood among minor attracted persons. And I found that in my study too, but I always want to qualify that with just because there is a higher rate of abuse among minor attracted persons does not mean that minor attracted persons abuse more than other people. Yeah. And that to me was like, even as myself, I, I needed to know why I had this attraction. I was, I had no recollection Mm -hmm. of ever having sexual abuse in my life, but like that was the only frame framework I had to deal with was like, I knew that people who are abused sometime go on to become the abuser. And so I like racked my brain and even allowed, even allowed my therapist to use um, repressed memory um, therapy on me. And, you know, she had me believe in things that I don't oh know are God. true till this day. <laughs> <laughs> and I know we could probably do a whole other podcast well, on that. I'll reserve, <laughs> I'll reserve my opinion on that one. <laughs> so... Speaking of another podcast, though, like we are kind of getting over the time frame where it gets tough to edit these, so we can maybe do a part two sometime. But absolutely, I'd love to, and I've had such a joy talking with you today. It's nice to have these conversations in a rational way and get to talk about all these things. And I, I really appreciate um, that you are not defensive when I talk about some of these things, because I know that it can be difficult when you, it's part of your identity and some of these answers aren't always fun to talk about or, or to discuss, but um, the willingness to look at the answers and see where we can move forward is what is going to bring us forward. So I want to thank you as well for being willing to have me and anybody who's listening to it as well. Well, you're welcome. I mean, I, I look at it as this, like, I'm tired of being misunderstood. Um, you know, I want to be understood so that I'm happy to have people who are willing to hear what I have to say and not judge me and view me as evil from the start. So, you know, I've actually have found in this last year and a half that I've been part of the community that that's actually almost a normal thing. Like before I joined it, I thought it was the opposite that I would never be able to talk about this to anyone other than a therapist and even that is a struggle to find that therapist you can talk to so yeah um, yeah so you know I have when I met you at um before you act and um Teresa and a few others just to be able to just be viewed as normal because I am a human (laughs) (laughs) yeah you are a human (laughs) so everybody else is humans you're all humans (laughs) So I want to thank you as well. So Always. And I plan to continue doing this work and hopefully uh, my next paper won't get banned from Twitter, but we're going to keep fighting it on our end to get this information out. Okay. Yep. And that that's the other podcast I want to do. Maybe get you and a few other people like Maggie and all that. To talk oh, about. I'd love to. I'm sure Craig why. would love to as well. <laughs> yeah. Why it's important to have this research on Twitter. So but. absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me today. And uh, I look forward to listening to it after and I'd love to see you again. You too. So uh, have a good rest of your day. Yes. Have a wonderful weekend. Bye. Bye. In conclusion, this episode has been an insightful and thought provoking exploration of the experiences of non offending minor attracted people. By providing a platform for discussion, 
and education, our host Elliot and his guest Crystal have shown a light on the importance of better understanding and supporting individuals who experience minor attraction but choose not to offend. Through their conversation, they have highlighted the need for more compassion and less stigma, and the importance of creating safe and non-judgmental spaces where people can seek support without fear of persecution. They have also underscored the importance of education for mental health professionals who work with individuals who experience minor attraction so that they can provide the best possible care for their patients. As we move forward, it is important that we continue to engage in honest, and open discussions about this complex and often misunderstood topic, so that we can build a society that is truly inclusive, and supportive of all individuals. We hope that this episode has challenged your assumptions and provided a new perspective on the experiences of non-offending minor attracted people. Thank you for joining us on this journey, and we look forward to continuing the conversation in future episodes. Until next time, remember. Listening is understanding.